Why did luxury cars take a sales dive? How did the automakers like Donald Trump's policies? Electric vehicles got new life, while the autonomous market kept growing closer to reality. These are just a few of the top automotive news stories from 2017 that we'll be discussing on this special edition of AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Here we are at the end of 2017, and what a year it's been for the automotive industry. What have been the highlights of the year? Well, I got three of my colleagues who really follow this business to sit around here and talk with me about the top news of the year, including Joe White from Reuters, Greg Miglior from Autoblog, and Todd Lassa from Automobile. I want to thank you all three for being here to talk about 2017 in the automotive industry. Joe, let me start with you. The economy's going great. GDP up, employment up, consumer confidence strong. Car sales have been kind of weak, down from a year ago. What's going well, on? Well, yeah, down, but down by that much. And, and there are, the, the predictions were for a lot worse downturn than has actually occurred. And I think the auto industry has, has basically pulled kind of a rabbit out of the hat. The, the hurricanes, which were a terrible tragedy in a lot of ways, have really helped the, really helped the automakers because they've it's generated demand for replacement vehicles, new vehicles um, dried up or helped to dry up the oversupply of off-lease cars that was causing all these headaches toward the early and middle part of the year. So it's still going to be a pretty good year. Uh, profits might not be quite as robust, but they're going to be fine. And from the terms of the mix, I mean, almost all, more than all of the downturn is going to be in sedans and small cars that people aren't buying. Um, but it's compensated by sales of big trucks and SUVs of every shape and size and, 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 and seating configuration that by and large make more money for the companies. So it's not that bad. Todd, you see it the same way? Not so bad? Uh, not so bad, but uh, not, and not unexpected in that we came off of two record years. We had 17.5 million in, in 15 and then a little bit more than that in uh, 16. So uh, to kind of settle down here at roughly 17 million, uh, is not a bad deal for the car industry. The question is, where where, where will the next uh, few years go? <laughs> Greg, what do you think uh, has been going on this year? It's a really nice plateau to be at. You know, it's things aren't really dropping off that much, as Joe mentioned, which is a good thing. And I think all it will take is maybe, you know, you know, some of the economic, you know, conditions to change in early 18. And who knows, car sales might go back up. Yeah, they could. I mean, the economy keeps growing, as I've been pointing out. Uh, unemployment keeps coming down. Uh, Paychecks go up, albeit not enough, but they're going up, so you, you could be right there. However, we've also seen, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive if you consider the, uh, the economy and all the talk about how uh, a lot of the, the money, a lot of the uh, growth is going to people who already have a lot of money, is that the luxury car market has taken a, a more of a dive this year than autos and trucks in general. Why is that? You would think people with money could go out and buy any new car they want. I, maybe they're being conservative just as they're not uh, investing. I, I think it's a mixed problem. Businesses. I think it's a mixed problem. And, and they don't have enough. I mean, even as many SUVs as BMW and Mercedes have got, they don't have enough. And they don't have enough capacity. And they're still sort of locked into this idea that the flagship of any brand is a sedan. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. Right? I mean, for most people now, what they want is a SUV in some configuration. But I don't know. I think that's not been true Lexus, for, for example, which has made its name the last 10 or 15 years off the RX. RX yeah. Started with the LS, of course, but uh, this uh, kind of glorified Toyota, the Lexus RX, has been its best seller for a long time. Uh, Cadillac is selling uh, more 
XT5s, I almost mm -hmm. called it an SRX, than, it, than any of their sedans. Uh, and they're doing fine with that. They're able to supply enough of those. Uh, and but Mercedes their passenger car sales well. are dying. Yeah, dying. Right, dying. exactly. Yeah. But, but, but same thing with Mercedes. Actually, Mercedes is still selling a lot of C-classes and E-classes, if you look at the numbers. And then uh, they've got this new mix of uh, SUVs, and they're coming out of a U.S. plant in Alabama. And uh, I think they're doing okay. But still, their numbers are not as good as they were the last couple of years. Uh, and um, so, you know, and, and you've got Jaguar's best-selling model right off the bat is the F-Pace. Uh, Which is SUV, an SUV. Right. Scott Keogh at Audi made an interesting point in an interview. I and he's the head of Audi. He's the head of Audi in the United States. He made an interesting point in an interview I did with him not too long ago where he, where he said, Part of the problem is that, that, that people in that market, the really affluent, tech-savvy people, really are looking for something that's, that's really new. And, you know, another configuration of leather or another configuration of the massaging seat is not what they identify as really new. And, and he basically admitted or said that Tesla is a lot of that, that people look at what Tesla is doing and they say, well, we want something like that. What have you got that's like that? So I don't know if you see the same thing, but yeah. that's that's what he said. I thought it was an interesting point. It's a really good point. I think the definition of luxury is changing, to your point there, Joe. And it's like, you know, I think you're going to see the car companies use some of their flagship SUVs, perhaps going forward, is these, like, technology test beds. You know, maybe the Escalade is Cadillac's, you know, one of their first really aggressive plays into, like, the next generation, past super cruise of, you know, autonomous tech. You know, the definition, you know, of what consumers want is changing. So the more sophisticated, I think, is where it's going to go rather than the different, you know, black, tan, leather sort of configuration. But, you know, Joe mentions Tesla and, and uh, other automakers wanting to, you know, have something new like Tesla. Well, actually, Tesla's success has been with its sedan, the, uh, the Model S, not the Model X. The Model X isn't doing that well and has not gotten good reviews. It's got uh, quality problems and so on. I don't know that um, anybody wants a... Uh, a version of the Model X from Mercedes or BMW. I think part of the problem with the Model X at Tesla is it doesn't look like an SUV or a crossover. It looks like a humpback passenger well, car. What, what I think the doors are the problem with the Model yeah, X. Yeah, I, th I, think, I do think the quality problems have scared a lot of people. I also want to point X. out one other brand. We need to talk about BMW because that has been the model luxury brand for a number of years. And uh, and, and I've, I've often said on, on your show that uh, that the 3 Series is the car that everybody wants to build because it's a relatively high-volume premium car that uh, had a sticker price in the low 30s, but started there, but uh, mostly sold in the 40 to 50,000 sticker range. And uh, that has taken a big dive this year. However, if you look at the sales charts, especially for the last few months, while the, four ser the 3 Series has been going down in sales, and, and that used to be both coupe and sedan, now they're separated, the 4 Series has been going up a bit. So what's that about? Why are people buying two-door coupes suddenly when they hadn't before? Is that uh, the big alternative to SUVs? I'm not sure. Well, it, tying in with that, perhaps, is when you look at Honda and Toyota, they are committed to passenger yes. cars, especially yep. when you yep. talk about the Accord and the Camry. Do you think they can pull this off? Well, I, I, I think they've got a good shot. I mean, so they have very powerful brands, obviously, in, in, in that particular type of, of car, those compact, uh, compact sedans and, and midsize sedans. So that's number one. And yeah, it does seem that Toyota and Honda have, have concluded, look, if this market is going to be significantly smaller, we're going to have a, a significantly larger share of it. Um, I mean, they're, they're both at something like 400,000 cars a year that, they're going to, that they want to sell, 350 to 400,000 cars a year they want to sell in this market. 
and they show no signs of wanting to back off for that, uh, for Camry or Accord, right? I mean, the new Accord seems to be doing quite well. Uh, Camry quite well, and the Civic for Honda is doing quite well. Um, but I'm not so sure that everybody else in the segment is doing quite well. In fact, a lot of them are starting to just plain exit, right? So I think that may well, be Well, and you mentioned the Civic, and, and they don't break out numbers for individual Civic models, but uh, they, they have a new Civic hatchback for the first mm -hmm. time in many years. And if you look at the capacity back there, uh, a Civic hatchback, and uh, the, the, it's well known that in the business, people are trading in for SUVs and going one size down. So uh, an Accord buyer will go to a CRV, uh, a Civic buyer will go to uh, like a Mazda CX-3 or a Honda HRV. Well, if you look at the, the, the Civic uh, hatchback and being able to throw a bike back there, and I'm talking about a younger buyer, mostly someone who uses it for sporting goods, I guess. Uh, does that smaller sport utility have the capacity for that? Maybe, maybe hatchbacks are finally catching on in the U.S. Are they, Greg? Do you think They're that might happen? They're also really good executed vehicles, well-executed vehicles. Like the Civic and the Accord are two of the best cars I think I've driven this year. I mean, really well done. They look good. They have good powertrains. Obviously, you get all that Honda reliability and quality and that, you know, brand awareness that you want as, you know, a potential buyer. And I think in that case, Honda and to a lesser extent, Toyota are kind of bucking the trend. Whereas like some of the domestic car companies are saying, hey, do we even want to bother with the Malibu or the Impala vehicles like that? You know, Honda's saying, well, we've got this really, really good Civic. We've got this Accord, you know, and they're doubling down there, which I think is actually a really good move. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on uh, aside from uh, the product. I don't think we can talk about 2017 and the automotive industry without talking about President Trump. Mm. Boy, this guy looks like he could be disrupting what's going on in the industry with his push to maybe blow up NAFTA. Uh, with freezing fuel economy standards from 2022 onwards, and maybe even getting rid of the safety regulation, what they call vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication. Joe, what do you think? Well, yeah, and, and you just outlined just how chaotic and, and, and turbulent the whole political situation is for the auto industry. I mean, so, so easing up on fuel economy rules could be a good thing. It could also be a really disruptive and bad thing because you could have warfare between California and the rest of the United States over regulation, which is what the industry obviously doesn't want and worked very hard to avoid in agreeing with the prior administration, President Obama, to, to the fuel economy regime. I think that the, what the automakers would probably like is, is sort of a little tweak to the dial, not a great big you know, change. On, on NAFTA, it's... Again, the auto, from the auto industry's point of view, blowing up NAFTA is a really bad idea, right? They don't want anything to do with that. They don't even want to talk about the possibility. Um, so I think, I think, what do they, they like to say, political risk. Navigating political risk is going to be a full-time job uh, for the people who run these companies for a while, I think, because of, what, of all the things you outlined. I think ultimately the consumer is going to be the one that probably loses here because, you know, with, you know, the fuel economy regulations, you know, perhaps being scaled back, what's going to happen, I think, is the car companies are just going to pick and choose and they're going to say, well, hey, you can get this really fuel efficient car. It's going to cost this much money or there'll be this sort of fuel credit, tax credit that's sort of layered onto it. And, you know, ultimately, I think you and I are going to be the ones paying for it. Mm -hmm. so. Todd, what do you think? Well, I think the, uh, the effects of any kind of pullback on regulation by the Trump administration are going to be limited by what uh, the, the auto companies, the global automakers, have done already uh, in terms of the V2V communication. They've invested a lot of money in that. Uh, having invested so much and not 
going to want to say, oh, we're going to back away from it. They're going to continue to develop that because that's part of autonomy, for one thing, and, and everybody wants to move in that direction. As far as fuel economy or uh, uh, emission standards, it will affect, it will give them a little more leeway. Automakers don't like governments telling them what to do, but they also have to deal with the Chinese government. GM no longer has to deal with, uh, with the EU, but uh, there are still these global considerations that, you know, you, you don't want the car you, you build for the U.S. market to be that much different than the one you build for the yeah. Chinese market. So I think that's going to be limited there. I think NAFTA is the big issue. And we've already seen Ford, for example, uh, while it, sa it said there's not going to be any net loss because we're going to keep the Wayne uh, facility open for trucks, which in is a better thing. In Michigan. In Michigan, Wayne, uh, in Michigan, and, and then move uh, um, the focus assembly down to Mexico. Well, they've since said, no, we're not going to move that to Mexico. We'll move that to um, to China, China instead. Yeah. So I, I, that might be the effect of uh, shutting down NAFTA. Yeah, and Tom makes a good point about, about China. I mean, China, I mean, G General Motors' biggest volume market, not their most profitable, but their biggest volume market is China. So it's not as, I mean, if, if Donald Trump and t tomorrow or the Congress tomorrow decided, okay, we're not going to have any fuel economy regulations in the United States at all, just forget it, do whatever you want. GM would still have to invest mm -hmm. in significant improvements in fuel economy, significant electrification to meet the demands of its highest volume market, which, by the way, the company says it's going to do. I mean, they're going to have, what is it, 20-some uh, models uh, by 2023. They made, they're going to be profitable. They've got a whole new architecture for electric vehicles coming that they've outlined. So they're not going to pull away from these investments. They can't because China is going to drive it even if the United States does not. Yeah, and if it's not China, it's elsewhere in the world where gasoline prices are far higher than they are in the U.S. But going back to the fuel economy standards for a moment, everyone's got to remember, they will continue to get tougher and tougher until the year 2022. And what the Trump administration then is talking about, and, and this is actually what the automotive industry had asked for in the midterm review, just freeze it there. So it's... Some people call it rolling back or dismantling the standards. No, they will continue to get tougher until 2022. So it's, it's not going to be as easy as some make it out to be. Right, but the uh, you know, new models coming out now, for, I'm thinking about the, the Jeep Wrangler, uh, for example, uh, has been kind of protected where all the uh, higher fuel economy launches shortly after the, the 19 Jeep Wrangler launches. And then um, for... Uh, you know, the years after, it will have already reached uh, the 2025 level, I think, early on, because they're not going to do another Jeep Wrangler for another 10 years or so. Yeah. yeah. And concurrent with this talk about EVs is we've seen some of the startups run into problems. Greg, let me throw it to you. Uh, Faraday Future, Lucid Motors, I think we could even argue Tesla are finding out that this isn't mm -hmm. easy. Well, it's, uh, there's a reason the same probably six or seven car companies have made cars for 100 years. And I think some of these, these startups, you know, they're, they're flashing the pans. You know, I think if you look at the Fisker model, you know, they had this beautiful car. They made a few of them. And then, boom, the sort of their bubble burst. And it's, I think you're going to see more of that with, like, the Lucids, the Faraday Futures. Will they actually build a few of these? Probably. Will some people pay a lot of money for them? Sure. But I don't think the long-term health of these companies is, you know, going to be something that I would want to invest in. Uh, and then, you know, if you look at Tesla, 
they're like, I mean, if we go down the Tesla road, they're like the ultimate, like, the story. The yeah, they're the story <laughs> of the industry story, right yeah. now. Yeah, right. Big story in the industry. Right. And it's just, you know, they are the story, I think, you know, from like Elon, who's like arguably the biggest single celebrity in the car business right now. And the fact that their brand just like, it overshadows everything every other car company is doing. I mean, you could argue the developments like Mercedes and Volkswagen and General Motors have announced those are far more significant in, you know, the way they could bring electrification to the masses. Like, that's true, like, a real effect on real people. Whereas, you know, Tesla's looking at sort of like a niche solution to some pretty well-off customers. And, you know, the only real sort of, you know, tiptoe they've done into the mainstream is the Model 3, which is not exactly going as planned. And that's a near luxury. If and when they can build it, it's a near luxury car. Sure, it's going to be $40,000. Yeah, I mean, they're going to, they want to be the biggest luxury brand in the United States. I mean, that's not, not quite the same thing as saying we want to be a mass market you know, replacement right. for Ford. Um, the interesting thing about Tesla is you know, their, you know, their approach to electric cars has had, I think, a really big influence on, on certainly the PR strategies, but I think the actual strategies of a lot of the incumbent car makers. I mean, stuff that was kind of often in R&D land has now been pulled right into the mainstream. So that's a real effect. But, you know, look, you know, some things don't change about the car business, and one of them is that you need, and you're alluding to this, need, you need a ton of cash. Mm -hmm. And when Elon Musk comes out and says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the semi-truck, you know, Class 8 truck business, yeah. And, and he's burning a billion dollars a quarter in cash. There's, you know, a legitimate question to ask. Well, how's that going to happen? Um, so we'll have to see how much stock he plans to sell, or what, he, uh, what other things he plans to do to raise that money. Well, and he raised money by by having that uh, dog and pony show in November, and where he where he showed the semi and the roadster, and he quoted uh, uh, wild performance numbers for each. The 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 semi is as quick as a sports sedan, and the uh, and the uh, roadster. Uh, I think he later said, can almost fly, hinting that maybe it will someday. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is how he raises money. He's mm -hmm. losing money on his cars. He claims they have a, a gross uh, profit margin, uh, and yet he's never made any money on, a, on an annual basis. And um, good, great point about the, about the company being a luxury company, because he's talked about the Model 3, the Tesla Model 3 being the car that will bring electric vehicles to the masses, but I think you've got it exactly right. I, the point I'd like to make about Tesla is that I don't think he ever intended for that to be a mass market car. And he took 400,000 uh, global reservations for it, $1,000 each, which helped uh, fund uh, the, next the next year or so. And, um, you know, the, a lot of these cars are going to the, the cult of Tesla, which is this year's the cult of Mac, right? It, they're going to people who have already bought those uh, more expensive Teslas, can't, therefore can't afford it. There are a lot of, some people among those 400,000 that are more like us. Yeah, there, there would be a four buyers who, who are stretching buyers. to do it, yes. Yeah. But, but after he sells those 400,000, if he ever builds that many, um, what happens to sales after that? I think it's all part of his like grand strategy that I think is actually like an exit strategy, actually. I think it's either going to be, they're going to make it, and they're going to actually be legitimately like Tesla Motors. This is a legit thing. Or they're going to fail spectacularly, but they're still going to have these like pieces, this like really good-looking Roadster, this Model 3, Model S, this semi-business, apparently. And then somebody's going to swoop in and sort of buy up the assets. And either way, you could argue that Elon Musk wins at that point because he's then succeeded in making Tesla either an independent automaker or Tesla lives on 
owned by, you know, pick your Ten investor. Cent. See, but he's always run into the problem of, oh, I'm a tech company, uh, mm -hmm. Musk has a tech company, not a manufacturing company, but you have to manufacture cars. Yeah. And, and manufacturing has always been uh, his Waterloo, so to speak. And, and I think if he's going to survive, if it's going to survive, he's going to pull an apple, just like said Cult of Mac, and have them manufactured maybe by a non-Tesla company mm -hmm. in China. I think that's the way, he, the, the way to the future for him, if he's got any kind of future. To build all those cars. Well, he's himself. certainly going to. He certainly wants to build his cars in China. And but the question, you know, I think you're right. I mean, he's got. He's got. He he just disclosed this the other day. I mean, he's got, uh, uh, or a month or so ago, I guess. He's he's got ten thousand people working in Fremont, and they're building a hundred thousand cars a year. Now, obviously, that's not the plan long term, um, but that's a big burden. And Very inefficient. And, yeah, and so that's not tech, those aren't tech company ratios, uh, employment ratios, right? Revenue per employee ratios. Those are manufacturing company employee you know, ratios. And, and um, it's going to be interesting to see how he manages that, whether, whether he fixes it or whether, he, as you say, maybe there's another way out. Uh, Maybe he needs to bring in like a true manufacturing czar, like somebody like, you know, one of the former Detroit executives or somebody who's worked, you know, somebody from Volkswagen, like a Wolfgang Bernhard, somebody like that to just totally run manufacturing. Let him be the celebrity tech leader sort of thing. He had help from Toyota to set up that factory and he, his manufacturing chief of many years left before the Model 3 launched. I, I don't think that's going to happen. The turnover I, rate there is pretty pretty crazy. Yeah, no, I, I think 2018 is the make it or break it year for, for it, Tesla. Absolutely critical. And if they do not hit critical. line speed of 5,000 a week with their Model 3, that's the end of the company. I think he's just going to find another way to raise more money. Well, he might, but I think that uh, if there's no end in sight to how much money he has to keep on raising, I think even the, the venture capital field is going to get very leery about giving him more. That should have happened a year or two ago, and it hasn't. Well, yet. you know, remember, his growth rate, has, Tesla's growth rate has been spectacular. Yeah. They're, they're growing at 100% a year in, in uh, many quarters. No other auto company in the world comes anywhere near no. to that. So no. if his, his rate of growth starts to plateau, I, I think the venture capital field is going to run for the well, corners. And another interesting test, so 2018 I think is clearly a sort of a test of his own ability to execute what he's promised. 2019 and 2020 will bring a test of how competitive is he will be against Audi, BMW, uh, Mercedes, probably Toyota Lexus, uh, yeah. as they Porsche. bring out, Porsche, as they, right, as they bring out, you know, some share of the Jaguar. dozen, Jaguar, of the dozens of electric cars that they've promised in the last, uh, the, over this past year uh, of 2017. So, you know, I think that's also a big, a big, uh, a big test for, is whether the issue is that Tesla is a brand that really has transcended kind of the traditional auto industry or whether they were just kind of ahead because no one else was running. And when you get these, these uh, incumbent brands that do have some power, you know, in the, in the field with really compelling products, what happens then? Yeah. Will they have staying power? That's, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. It's like when I look at some of their competitors that, you know, that Todd brought up, like, I would rather drive, I think, you know, whatever the production version of the Porsche Mission E is. I mean, that's a great looking car. And it's backed by a company that's been around for 70 years that knows how to make performance and has all of this, you know, engineering behind it. You know, that to me is like going to be the tipping point is when people start saying, well, wait a minute, Tesla's cool, but I could get that from Porsche or Jaguar or Cadillac or whomever. And, you know, if they can't, you know, iron out all these other little issues, 
that could really be the end of them. Okay, we're getting down towards the end of the show. One more topic we have got to at least touch on a little bit, autonomy. Is this the year of autonomy, or does that uh, be for next year's show? That's well, next year's show. <laughs> I think, you know, to, to your point, the point is that it really accelerated, at least in terms of uh, public outside of the auto enthusiast um, bubble um, knowledge, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of news going out on that. The New York Times Magazine um, devoted an entire issue one Sunday recently uh, to autonomy, and um, you know, I, and and just the way you've got companies that haven't said much about autonomy until now, saying much more about it. Ford saying that it's a lot further along than anybody knows. Uh, GM finally uh, gets uh, Super Cruise out on the road, and um, and and I think very significantly is building the uh, test car, autonomous test car. Chevy Bolts in the Chevy Bolt factory rather than doing them in a special uh, studio. Yeah. I think that's key. I think that tells you how far along they're coming. Mm -hmm. now, I think 2017 will go down as the year where, where, where a lot of talk started to turn into action. And I mean, I mean exactly right about GM. I mean, they're, they're really doubling down on this idea of kind of building and owning um, self-driving taxi fleets essentially and they'll yeah. probably branch out from there and you're seeing uh, and you see Uber and Lyft each with deals um, to to with car makers with this Ford and, and, and Volvo um, in Uber's case um, to start sort of getting out of the idea that well we're, we'll build you know sort of the Uber cars like no we'll Volvo knows how to build cars let them do that and we'll get this stuff on the road so I think the, the push coming from the ride services companies who really need to get the drivers out of the cars to make any money, uh, the push coming from the big incumbent manufacturers uh, really doubling down and, and starting to kind of get out of R&D mode. Uh, I think this is a turning point year, but I think execute, actually getting a, a, ride, you know, a, a robot taxi ride somewhere, that's more of a 2019 Time frame, I'm going to pick 2020 is the year that we're going to actually see this and where I think you'll be able to get, you know, there'll be an app. It'll be some amazing, you know, post Uber thing. And you'll be able to get like a self-driving ride to wherever you want to go. I think it'll be like limited more in scale. And I think the next couple of years are going to be building to this like sort of new wave. And yeah, I think 2020 is when it's going to actually start to really happen. 2020. Well, we're going to have I'm to watch say 2021. That. Okay, 2021. We'll put you down there. Look, okay. there are so many more topics that I wanted to get to here. We're going to keep this conversation going. If you'd like to see the rest of it, tune into our website at www.autoline.tv because there's other topics that we got to get to about what this year was about. But Joe White, Greg Miglior, Todd Lassa, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Good to be here. Yeah, sure.